Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. My guest today is Deirdre McCloskey. Professor McCloskey holds the Isaiah Berlin Chair in Liberal Thought at the Cato Institute and is a distinguished professor emerita of both economics and of history, as well as English and communication at the University of Chicago. Professor McCloskey, thanks for joining me. Yes, but a minor correction. I'm not, I was at the University of Chicago, but my last appointment was at the big state university in Chicago, the University of Illinois at Chicago. Oh, I see. Okay. I'm, but I was for 12 years at the University of Chicago. I was tenured. I'm a Chicago girl. Correction noted. <laughs> so you've got both You've got both credits to your name. That's right. Okay. So you've written three beautiful books attempting to explain. This is what we're, we're talking about, the Bourgeois Era Trilogy. These three beautiful books attempting to explain the great enrichment or this phenomenon of sustained innovation and economic growth that began in Northwestern Europe in the mid-18th century. So how did you come to write these books, and why is this topic so important? Well, in the old days, I'm talking about the 90s, I was increasingly irritated, and had been for a long time, about how intellectuals in the West attacked the bourgeoisie, the middle class, and were disdainful of the economy and people in business and so forth. So I, I, I started my first book, which was called The Bourgeois Virtues, around, around the year 2000. And it turned out to be an ethical and even theological exploration of what virtues there were in a commercial society such as we have. And then in the course of that, I, I, I could say I discovered or started to think seriously about what all this meant for our prosperity, our economic growth. We are gigantically better off in material terms than our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. I mean, from 1800 to the present, income per head in the world now has increased per head now by a factor of about 25. That's a 2,500% increase. And nothing like this had ever happened before. And as an economic historian, I had always wanted to know the cause of that. So in my next book, I looked into all the explanations. And one side of the explanation from the left is that the enrichment of a place like Europe was caused by, I don't know, the slave trade or exploitation. And the other side from the right was, no, no, it was these virtuous investors. So it was capital accumulation. And neither side made any sense to me. I had long studied these matters over the previous 40 years and concluded that there is something terribly wrong, and that the theme of the first book, that ideas matter, that ethics matters, might be the key. So in the, in, in the second book, and especially in the third book, I, so to speak, tested that assertion that it was the coming of liberalism that caused the modern world. It was the coming of this at first partial, but then gradually expanding uh, liberty, I always stutter on my favorite word, liberty. <laughs> I study on liberty. Isn't that irritating? But 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 okay. That was the cause. That was, as it were, the secret sauce 
the spring. It wasn't trade. It wasn't improvements in the legal system. It wasn't this or that. <laughs> it was the idea that everyone should have equality of permission. And eventually, men should be equal to women. Blacks should be equal to whites. Colonial people should be equal to the imperial powers. This deep egalitarianism of the modern world is against the world of kings and, and priests and so forth. So in a nutshell, I came to the conclusion, I didn't have it when I started, that it was the idea of liberty for all, a new idea in the 18th century that made for innovation and the modern world. So if you just say liberty by itself, does that consist in social institutions that promote liberty? But you're distinguishing the idea of liberty from, say, the the institutions that might uphold liberty. Is that right? Yes, I am. Because if it's strong enough in people's hearts, then the institutions follow. That's what I'd claim. I mean, the first great triumph of liberalism was the abolition of slavery. And it was a major change in the economy and the way the world viewed ordinary people. Ordinary people like your ancestors and mine were not to be viewed as just the lower class or the serfs or indeed the slaves. And then the institutions, here's an excellent example. In the North American British colonies, as we know, in the late 17th and 18th century, they drifted away from Britain. And they got very independence-minded, which resulted in 1776. But meanwhile, what was driving that was a ethical, personal conviction in New Englanders like uh, Samuel and John Adams, and in Virginians who unfortunately owned slaves like Jefferson or Madison, that they should be free people. And then think of it the other way around. If you have a wonderful institution like our Constitution, but you get uh, bad people running it, people have no ethical convictions, no desire to be free people, then it's not going to work. Look, the, the Soviet Constitution, the, the Soviets had three different constitutions. And even the one in 1936 under Stalin is a beautiful document. Oh, it's lovely. We will never raid your your apartment in the middle of the night and we'll give, you'll have due process and everyone will be very lovely, free press, blah, blah, blah. And then at four in the morning, the KGB arrives and takes you off to the Gulag because it was run by thugs, the Soviet Union was. So it didn't work. So it, it seems to me that this whole new emphasis in economics over the last, well, it's been going on easily, um, 20 years on institutions, um, Darren Ashimoglu and people like that, is misplaced because it acts as though institutions could be just dropped down on a society. I think they're, as we would say in econometrics, they're endogenous. They grow out of the ethics of the people. And it's the ethics, the ideology, the core political conviction that changed in the 18th century. So your view is that institutions without the surrounding ethical culture would not ultimately cause such a change. Right. What about the other way around? Could such a culture without the institutions cause such a change? Yeah, because the institutions would develop. I mean, let's take a somewhat odd case. Think of the margins 
of the central power, the Scottish Highlanders, way far away from London, far even from the powers in Edinburgh, in the Lowlands. And this, by the way, is true all over the world, that the mountain, the mountain people are ungovernable, express it that way. They won't kowtow because they're so far away, they, they don't ever see the sheriff of Nottingham. He's way far away. And they develop a fierce independence, which then results in a culture of, uh, well, fierce independence. And, and they're not frozen in the hierarchies of the central power. Now, they have their own hierarchies, as in the highlands, but they're not subordinated to the central power. So the institutions of a free society are not droppable. Now at the World Bank, their idea is you pour institutions into society and stir, and that takes care of it. And this goes back to D Douglas North and, again, people like Ashimoglu, and it's just not very plausible. But even on your view, the, the culture is the central thing, but from mm -hmm. that grow positive institutions. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, sure, it's fair. But you can then drop the institutions or, look, let's take the case of Britain, which hasn't got a written constitution and has never had one. Yet, it has a constitution. It doesn't have it, but it does have it. It's not written down. Ours was one, indeed one of the first written constitutions. So <laughs> institutions are neither necessary nor sufficient. Now, of course, you can have bad institutions. This I came to understand from George Will's excellent book on conservatism. And it's true that if you have the institution of slavery, as they had in the South and didn't have, or they had it before, but they got rid of it in the generation after the revolution, then there's going to be this institution is going to be um, pernicious. It's going to have bad effects. You can you can have institutions that are bad. And I may say, well, let me be careful about this because I'm not sure I'm saying it right or, or that I'm thinking it right. The institution of slavery was bad for everybody, for the slave owners and for the enslaved. And it created what George calls a soul craft that was bad for people. I mean, look, I think the imperial presidency in the United States, which has gradually gotten bigger and bigger under every administration, whether Republican or Democratic, is bad for people. It's a bad institution. It should be much cut down, in my opinion, um, because it makes people think that the president is the king and that if they've got a problem, he or she can solve it. And that's not how a free people should behave. So I suppose I'm saying, I'm kind of thinking aloud here, I'm saying that, um, yeah, bad institutions can have a bad effect. Good institutions can too, I guess. What I am saying is that they're not sufficient. That if you don't have a modicum of honest, and actually a wonderful example of this is what's happened in our country during Donald Trump's presidency. Uh, we had an unethical, self-interested man Fortunately, he's stupid too, so that, that he didn't really succeed in what he was trying to do. But he was in charge, and this, this, as people keep saying, this corrupted everyone around him, and in a way, it corrupted the electorate. So there's still people who believe that he's the man on the white horse, which is the core of fascism. The man on the white horse is going to is and ba based on resentment. We we hate the Jews or the foreigners or the pointy-headed intellectuals. And this guy's going to do it for us. So what specifically 
does the kind of culture you're talking about look like? And how can you and how did you research it empirically to say, here is a place where this kind of culture started to grow more? It's rather obvious that it started to grow in Northwestern Europe. It is rather important to understand it's not general European. It's in Northwestern Europe. And it's in a specific time. That's also fairly clear that it really came to flourish in in the 1700s. And those are very important scientific facts, those two. And then another very important scientific fact is that other societies that could have had had it, that were big commercial societies and, and were scientifically sophisticated in their own ways very often, like China or Japan, Northern India, the Ottoman Empire, the Arab flowering after after the death of the prophet, the Roman Empire, Greece, <laughs> all of them could have done what Northwestern Europe did, liberalism. But for what I call, it doesn't satisfy people much, for accidental reasons, the Northwestern Europeans got it by the 18th century. And, and it was a close thing. So I'm looking into the history of the church, um, the history, uh, but because the church was turned on its head in, in 1517 in the Protestant Reformation. And I'm looking at the history of kingship. Queen Elizabeth, Henry VIII were not liberal. There was no precur- There was no deep precursorness about 18th century liberalism. A series of accidents that could have gone the other way in Northwestern Europe finally got Northwestern Europe. Now I'm talking about Holland, England, Scotland finally got them to to develop this idea of equality of permission, not overturning hierarchy of, um, of aristocrat, commoner, and clergy. So, I mean, let's just take one example, but I've got a great number that I go into. Not a great number, because there are only a few turning points where this, this accident comes up heads for Northwestern Europe. And then you can find similar flips of coins where it comes up tails for the uh, for the Japanese, for example. Let's take the Spanish Armada in 1588. Had the Spanish Armada succeeded in its purpose, which was to land an overwhelming force of the best army in Europe on the south coast of England, that's what they were going to do. England would have been forced back into the Catholic fold. There's just no question about it. Because the English, Queen Elizabeth the contrary notwithstanding, couldn't possibly have won against the Spanish army. And then Holland would have fallen, and the whole Protestant Reformation would have been in question. You, you, you can just see that that was a crucial step among many others. Well, not too many, as I said, maybe a half dozen, uh, maybe eight turning <laughs> uh, points that didn't happen elsewhere or turned out badly. For example, uh, in, the, in the Song Dynasty in China about a thousand years ago was in many ways you could, what could you say? You could call it pre-liberal. It was a, doing very well commercially. There was a flowering of science of all kinds. But then the Mongols invaded. And the Mongols became Chinese, as all the invaders of China do. But they didn't quite have the same commercial savvy as the, as the Song Dynasty did. And then you get the Ming Dynasty and the Qing Dynasty, both of which are very conservative. And China doesn't doesn't go down the liberal road. Is one of the the historical accidents that Europe has 
a geography suited to political decentralization, uh, allegedly yeah. more so than China, for instance? Yeah, I think so. But it's also that fact is also true of Japan, which is in some ways very similar to Europe. If Japan had yeah. been bigger, had been the size of Europe, might it have no, had a better I, shot I, for that reason? Well, no, because you know, the Chinese were big and they didn't do it. But no, I, that argument is an old and sensible geographical argument that, well, look, here, here's how to understand it. And we all do. It's not as if I'm inventing this. Many people have tried to unify Europe. Charlemagne was the most sustained, successful example, but he didn't succeed in the end. Hitler was the last unsuccessful example. And in between was Napoleon and the Pope and the Holy Roman Empire, Spain and Habsburgs. They're all trying to do it. They're all trying to form a China, you might say. And as your question suggests, that would have been bad for this accident of liberalism. I think Joel McKeer emphasizes the, the combination of cultural homogeneity with political heterogeneity in Europe. Yeah. I don't know, know if you want to say anything about that, but maybe more generally, Joel McKeer is another scholar who emphasizes culture as a central, uh, as a central driving force of the great enrichment as you do, but you don't have yes. exactly the same story. So how do your stories yeah, different and what does he get wrong? Well, they're very close. Joel and I are also, also personally close. We, we've known each other forever, and uh, we admire each other. I, I think it's fair to say as scientists. I, I think that particular point you make about the, well, as I just said, it's a reasonable position that you couldn't form a unified Europe the way China or the, or the Ottoman Empire were. I think Joel puts too much emphasis on science. And I've been, he and I have been talking about this for years, and I can't seem to get him to admit the following. Science matters immensely in your life and mine right now. What we're doing right now is obviously a direct result of high science of all kinds. Uh, chemistry, electronics, electricity, blah, blah, blah. So now a considerable part of a, of a modern economy is science-based, but that doesn't really start to matter much economically until, well, choose your date, 1900, 1945, whenever. But it's not the case in 1850 or 1750. There are sciences going great guns, but you know, it's going in other places too. Here's one of the problems with Joel's argument, which he's never adequately answered. Science is a European phenomenon, whereas what he and I are trying to explain is the peculiarity of Northwestern Europe. So you have this cause that, you know, there, there are Russians doing science in the, in the 18th and 19th century and great mathematicians in Russia, for example. But by itself, that wouldn't have accomplished the great enrichment, as I call it. I don't know if this is totally responsive to what you just said, but is it that Northwestern Europe represents maybe the overlapping part of the Venn diagram where you have this European culture of like high science and in Northwestern Europe, you also have a culture of smaller scale tinkering and inventing and business savvy. And that's yeah. where you get both of these things. Yeah. yeah, but that's to be too kind to Joel for the early years. Joel is completely right by 1900. Maybe, certainly by the post-Second World War era. 
um, with you know all kinds of uh, inventions. But the West, again, this Northwestern Europe part, which to which the United States is kind of addendum, started to get rich very much earlier and was on its way in this liberal plan. Now, then, then there's another point. And again, I haven't been able to get Joel to pay much attention to it, which is that the, the, the flowering of science in the 19th century and the 20th itself depended on liberalism. Imagine this. Do a mental experiment. Imagine that science had developed the way it did. You know, that in 1700, they believed that there were four elements, earth, fire, water, and uh, the fourth one. Air, wind. Air, that's right, air, air. And But by 1800, they were starting, you know, they discovered oxygen, and carbon, and by 1900, they had the periodic table. Okay, imagine all that had happened. Yet, we hadn't had liberalism, this deep conviction that everyone should have equality of permission. You should be able to start a business, go into any occupation you want, move wherever you want. Suppose instead we had still the rigid hierarchies of earlier agricultural societies, such as, such as Europe in the early modern period. Think of a nightmare. Think of that, how terrible that would be. The state would be armed with mustard gas and machine guns, reinforced concrete to build prisons. There would, there would still be slaves. There's nothing in science that says you don't have slaves. There's nothing in science that says that poor boys like Edison or Carnegie should have a chance in life, whereas liberalism does. So I, that, that's why I say it's special. Science schmeinz says, as Joel would say, he's fond of that Yiddish joke. Science is not the secret sauce. It eventually becomes overwhelmingly important. But without liberalism, the modern world would be a prison. Can you say a little bit more about, you just mentioned a few examples, the ability to start a business, this widespread equality of permission. People mm -hmm. say equality, and the relevant question is always equality of what? Yeah. you say a little bit about what, what specifically you mean by liberalism and the rise of it? And how does virtue ethics fit into your story and to liberalism? Well, I mean equality of permission. I mean non-aggression. I mean, as uh, Frank Knight, the great economist in the 30s, said, we should have government by discussion. We shouldn't use violence for politics. But but the main thing is this this equality business. Liberalism, classical, John Stuart Mill, Adam Smith, liberalism is egalitarian, strikingly so. Um, when Thomas Jefferson wrote with Franklin's help, all men are created equal, he was articulating a very what by then among advanced intellectuals in, in Northwestern Europe had become a, a kind of obvious point. Um, now, he said men. He didn't say women. And Tom owned slaves and didn't free them even when he died. So this man was, to put it mildly, conflicted. Franklin himself owned slaves, by the way. But by the end of his life, towards the end of his life, he was an abolitionist. That's the core idea. And it, it, it's almost sufficient. If, you, if enough people in the society believe that hierarchy is, I mean, inherited hierarchy, intrinsic hierarchy, racial, um, gender hierarchies are just 
the way things are and shut up and obey. If enough people deny that, there's a there's a story from uh, the Powder River Valley in Montana in the 1880s. Apparently a European aristocrat somehow got out to Montana in the 1880s without having much experience, I guess, with the rest of the United States. And I don't know what he was doing out there, but he he, he went up to a cowboy. It's in the story. Apparently it actually happened. He said to the cowboy, who is your master? Maybe he wanted a place to sleep that night, and he wanted to know who the lord of the manor was so that he could go introduce himself as a European aristocrat and get a bed to sleep in. And the cowboy said, he ain't been born yet. And that's the core liberal idea. He ain't been born yet. And when you have that, it turns out it didn't have to be this way. It's not a mathematical proposition. It's just happens to be sociologically correct. When people believe that, they do amazing things. Ordinary people open a hairdressing salon in the neighborhood and have great success. So it goes. This is this is an important point I want to talk about. What do you think is the specific mechanism by which this change in culture, in rhetoric, leads to the kind of activities that cause the great enrichment? My, my thought was that if everybody believes this and there's a kind of a broad admiration for people who go into business and are successful and tinker that, you know, we're such social creatures that that's a huge motivating force for people to become inspired to try things if they're going to be admired by their fellows. But I don't know if you have a different mechanism in mind. No, you have it right. That's exactly it. My friend Don Boudreau pointed out to me that what I'm basically saying is that older societies, in a sense, posed taxes on enterprise. They said, oh, no, 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 don't do innovation. That that innovation is terrible. It'll disturb the hierarchies. And then it fell. Then this idea of equality of, of permission triumphed isn't quite the words, because as you know, it took quite a while for it to be expressed for blacks and for women, immigrants and for queers and so forth. But it kept growing. What, If you want to talk about geographic determinism, one very important one is the success of the United States. Latin America didn't succeed very well in this, this respect. It was quarrelsome and didn't, we didn't, maybe the Spanish colonial inheritance was too, too much of a problem. But the, the success of the United States in the 19th century, in the face of great doubts among Europeans in this mob rule, this democracy by the people, for the people, that kind of talk, um, was very important. Had there not been a United States, I'm not sure we would have had the modern world because it was kind of a, a kind of a test case. But you put your finger on it. It's not that there were more entrepreneurs naturally in the United States or in Britain or in Scotland or in northern France or wherever this happened or in Japan eventually. It's not that there, it, in, it, there's a tendency to look sociologically at the origins of entrepreneurs and try to figure out where that spirit comes from. No. It's the attitude of the rest of the society towards the entrepreneurs that matters. And that definitely changed. The English courts in the uh, 1730s, I believe it was, stopped enforcing guild rules in England. (laughs) Suddenly, 
someone would that some guild of carpenters in Norwich would complain to the local magistrate that some carpenter had come there with uh, from elsewhere to work and uh, he they would say look he's got to join our guild and we're going to make him become an apprentice first and then no he can't do this stuff we have a monopoly of it and the courts increasingly said no you don't so it was the attitude of the rest of the society towards the entrepreneurs, the craftsmen, the tinkers. That, that's what mattered. So the change of culture, in your view, doesn't have any obvious or, or very useful cause. It was, came about by a series of accidents. Well, it, it had causes. It had causes. The success of the liberal idea was established by, say, the English Revolution and its comparative success. They chopped the head off of an anointed king. The Glorious Revolution of 1687-88-89. Uh, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. These things could have gone the other way, but didn't. So it's not just wild accident and, oh, gee, I don't know. No, I, I, I know. I know why it happened. And I also know why it didn't, or not as much. I, I, I or other people need to do more research on this. The other places where commerce was very big and it could have worked out, like uh, China or North India. But I think I know, or think I, I suspect, or however you want to put it, that these other places didn't keep building by accident by these close calls, didn't accidentally build the notion that all people should be equal in permission. When Charles II was being executed in 1649, he was allowed under English law to have a speech from the scaffold. And he said, don't you understand, a sovereign and a subject are clean, different things. You can't do this to me. You, you say you had a trial and I was convicted of various crimes. No, I'm the sovereign. I'm different from you. Some years later in 1685, a man named Rumbold, Richard Rumbold, who had actually been involved in the English Revolution before, he was hanged in, uh, in, in Edinburgh. And uh, he said from his scaffold speech, I hear this. I think that there is no man born of God above another. For none comes into the world with a saddle on his back, nor any booted and spurred to ride him. And in those two scaffold speeches, you have the essence of the ideological change that happened in Europe. Hey, everyone, this is Chris Kaufman. And I just want to let you know that each one of you are super special precious snowflakes that I appreciate to bits for listening to my show. I love doing this show so much, but it is still a small show. And if you want to help me out a little bit, I would greatly appreciate it if you would just recommend the show to a friend, maybe two friends. Um, but every little bit counts, especially when you are a small, new and growing show, as I am. So if you want to help me out, that is the simplest thing you can do. And I will not bug you any longer right now. Back to the show. Can I ask you to say a little bit more about some of the competing theories that explain the great enrichment, maybe just briefly, and what you think is wrong with them? So you, you mentioned two earlier. One is the idea that essentially exploitation 
conquest, colonialism, slavery, that these are the kinds of things that created enrichment. And the other one was something like capital accumulation. Can yeah. you say briefly why those are not satisfactory answers? Well, let's start with uh, start with capital accumulation. The problem with sheer capital accumulation, which is what people have in mind, sheer capital accumulation is just piling brick on brick or bachelor's degree on bachelor's degree. And without innovation, there's declining marginal product. There's diminishing returns. And it's, it's perfectly obvious in your own life. You have a car, I suppose. And if you get a second car, maybe that's helpful. But a third and a fourth and a fifth car are just going to sit in your front lawn <laughs> and rust. There's no gain. And in fact, they're just garbage. And the same is true of, um, you know, I got a PhD in economics. I could, could have got one in geology or something. And then I could have got one in classics and got one in this, that. Eventually, there are diminishing returns to sheer capital accumulation, unless there's some use for it. And the use comes out of innovation. New ideas for, for using the capital, the labor, the land, whatever it is, in new ways. So the push is on the other foot. It's not piling brick on brick. Now, turn to the left. That's on the right. And the left says, oh, yeah, it was actually Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto says it was piracy that made in the 16th century, 17th century, especially Sir Walter Raleigh and all that gang, Pete, what's his name in Holland, seized the Spanish treasure fleet once and poured it in 1625 into the capital markets of Amsterdam. Okay, then that's supposed to be the original accumulation of capital. See, this is why I started with the sheer accumulation, because inside the Marxist or the, or the left-wing um, argument is accumulation again. Not innovation, not the liberty to uh, cry out new things. Um, no, that's not part of it. It's just piling brick on brick. So both sides have this brick on brick idea. Then you say, well, it's slave, the slave, slave trade or the slave, slavery itself. Well, if it was the slave trade or slavery itself, the modern world should have come out of Africa because that's where the black slaves were coming from. By the way, there were slaves all over the place. There, there were Greek slaves in Rome. There were Russian slaves in Constantinople and Istanbul. Um, there were black East African slaves in the Arab world. The East African slave trade was as large as the Atlantic slave trade and lasted a longer time. Yet, if slavery is the cause and then the accumulation you get from this, this original investment, the Middle East should have been the place where we had the, the great enrichment. So there are all kinds of geographical problems with this. Brazil should have been where it happened. Brazil had it had the last slave society in the West, uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Geographical and timing problems. It doesn't have it doesn't narrow down the time frame very well. That's to put it mildly, because many societies have had slaves, and, and indeed you say, well, it's cotton, as these people do, and that that's completely implausible because cotton was grown by free labor, as well as by enslaved labor. And it was, it was after the Civil War 
Almost immediately after the Civil War, the South was producing as much cotton as it had produced before the Civil War. So in and then, I mean, there are so many things wrong with this argument on the left that it's it's amazing. Uh, imperialism, you say, well, that's what it is. It's the it's the jewel of the of the of the British Empire. It's India. Well, there was some stealing from India in the 18th century, but by the time of the uh, John John Company, as it was called, the East India Company, um, there was no stealing going on. There was hardly any taxation. The Raj managed with clever politics and a little bit of violence to keep all the various princes and so on in balance with each other. So they, they this company, this private company, could run India. And then in 1853, it stopped being able to, and the British government took it over. And Victoria became the Empress of India 20 years later. Blah, 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 blah. The amount that you could possibly get from free trade with India, which is what it was, or even stealing from India, was, again, it feeds back into this, this business of capital accumulation not being it. It just, you know, you get one jolt of stolen money, stolen jewels, <laughs> and then that's it. So it doesn't work. That if you say this to Indian, most Indian intellectuals, they get very angry at you because they feel the insult. They were the colonists, and I, I completely um, sympathize with them. It was really annoying and irritating and shameful that they were colonized. Gandhi was asked once what he thought of European civilization, and he said, I think it would be a good idea. Okay. But when you rob a convenience store and you shoot the accidentally sure on purpose, shoot the clerk, and you get $37.50 from it, the loss to the clerk has nothing to do with the $37.50 that you got in the game. You see what I mean? So that there's a terrible loss psychologically and, and maybe in other ways, but especially psychologically, is not the same thing as a gain to the colonial powers. And we're talking here about the, uh, about the British Empire, but if the Spanish Empire and the Portuguese empires, which were larger than the British Empire until the late 19th century, if, if imperialism was the way to wealth, why did Portugal in 1900 end up being the poorest country in Europe? Some of this seems to stem from zero-sum thinking, if you if yeah. you have a zero sum view of economics yeah. and the loss from slavery, colonialism, conquest, the loss, as you yeah. said, yeah. is enormous to the losers. But that doesn't sure. mean that the gain is enormous to the winners. That, that's exactly right. And and there's a there there is something that, that drives the sixteen nineteen people crazy, if you say it. And I'm not in the business of ma making them crazy. I don't that doesn't That's Phil Magnus's job. Yeah, that's Phil's job. He does a hell of a job at it, too. A core problem with the slavery caused it is that the only, I'll put it this way, the big rents, the big profits from slavery were earned by other Africans. Specialists in violence in Africa went to their neighbors and grabbed them and sold them to the Europeans. But the Europeans paid the value of the slave in production. 
So they got a normal return, right? All the way back to the plantation, they got a normal return. They, did, they didn't get some big profit. The profit came, you know, if I could enslave you right now, that would be terrific for me. I would get your entire marginal product minus, you know, I wouldn't give you much food or clothing or anything. I'd do great with that. But if I then sold you to someone else, this is a bizarre example, but you'll see quite <laughs> run with if it. I did, having enslaved you originally, I then sold you to someone else. How much would the other person pay? Well, they pay what you're worth to them as an instrument of production, right? They, if, if they don't, there'll be other people very willing to pay that price. So competition in the sale of, of uh, slaves will drive the price up exactly the point where the normal return is earned. So the secondary owners of slaves, once they've been enslaved back in Africa, don't, you know, you could, you could say it in a kind of simple, excessively simple form, just say they earned nothing. But you could, well, they earned something, but nothing like what the slave catchers in Africa earn. There's no reason to think that they are earning wildly more than people uh, in, in any other line of business or buying any That's other type exactly of That's exactly right. Here, here's an here's a important example in this whole debate, but it's people just don't, you know, it's very hard to get this to cross because people think you're defending slavery. The slave trade is often um, suggested as a source of this original this silly idea of the in a way the, it, they're the ones defending the idea that slavery is especially efficient i mean they're obviously yeah. against slavery morally but in a way you you have a different form of the high ground of saying slavery is not only immoral it's stupid and uneconomic well it's not so much uneconomic it's no more uneconomic than hiring free labor is i didn't mean i'm not making that case which was made at the time by liberals it's not like uniquely Johnson. and overly profitable. That's the key. It's not. It's not that. It's. It's simply that it's not unusually profitable. For example, the slave trade. Any ship could be made into a slaver, and there were thousands of ships in the Atlantic trade. So, if there was some big amount to be earned by going to West Africa and buying these slaves at the price that the West African kings were willing to sell them to you in view of their price in Ray Cife or Kingston or, or Charleston, you would go. And so the earnings of the slave trade were also subject to this equalization by, by competition. So what about the resource and geography argument? Why isn't natural resources and geographical endowment an explanation for the great enrichment? Well, there's obvious problems. If natural resources were the key to economic growth, Russia would be the richest country in the world, and Hong Kong would be abjectly poor, so would Japan. Japan doesn't have either coal or iron ore. It imports both coal and iron ore from Australia. And what do you think it sells back to Australia? Steel. So, you know, geography is defeated by cheap transportation, ultimately. Now, at the beginning, it's important that England had a lot of coal, but so did many other parts of the world. So did China, for example. So did parts of northern India. And yet, just having coal isn't enough. In fact, the, the English, I'm a little bit uncertain about this historical fact, but I think it's true. I've, people who I trust have said it. The English 
after the Romans left, forgot <laughs> how to use coal. Now, that sounds a little bit incredible, but apparently it's true. What they did forget, this, this one, I'm sure, this anecdote, I'm sure, they forgot the use of the potter's wheel. Now, these weren't the Celts. These were the Anglo-Saxons who had come and occupied England. But they, they didn't know about the potter's wheel, that you could spin this thing and make stuff that way. But they also didn't know about coal. Coal was rediscovered. And then for many centuries, from the high Middle Ages on, London houses, because they had burned up all the forests around, uh, were heated with coal. And yet it didn't do anything until the ingenuity, the, the inventions, the liberty to try things out made this resource valuable. Here I, I stand with uh, Simon, Her, Herb, not Herb Simon, what's his name? He wrote a book called The Ultimate Resource. Yeah, Julian Simon. Julian Simon. That's right, Julian Simon. Here I'm completely on, on Julian's side. If he hadn't died young, he would have won the Nobel Prize because he's absolutely right that, you know, rare earths, let's take that case, rare earths are just dirt until someone figures out that they're an important part of computer batteries. They're just another kind of dirt. They're called rare. I don't know why they're called rare, but anyway, there they are. They're just hard and, to get. I don't think they're actually rare. That's right. Okay, they're hard to get. And so are diamonds. And then suddenly diamonds, although De Beers has maybe prevented this, but um, artificial diamonds are increasingly easy to make. I think jewelers can still tell the difference. And as long as yeah. they can, maybe that'll keep diamond prices high. But when they can stop being able to tell the difference probably the game's over. That's right. I want to read a little teaser clip I heard about a paper coming up that I wanted you to react to. So I don't know if you follow oh. this guy's work, Roger Koppel, I think is how you say his name and some, oh, some other. He's, a, he's, he's an excellent economist. He's a great economist. Roger so he is. and some other authors are putting out a paper in July, I think about the great enrichment. And he uh -huh. tweeted a little teaser about it that says, it was not the Protestant ethic, the glorious revolution, British primogeniture, or bourgeois dignity that caused the Industrial Revolution. It was slow, grinding probability taking its own sweet time before finally delivering the inevitable combinatorial explosion. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Because obviously he's got a line well, in there directed it, at you. Well, but in a way, I, I agree with Roger that it is, a, as I said, it's these accidents. But that's to suggest that there's no... I, I think... Roger, who is a liberal, a classical liberal, would agree with me that absent the secret sauce of liberalism, the combinatorial stuff wouldn't work. So it, I half agree with him, but he's he's just going to throw it into a probability calculation. And, that, you know, that that's kind of, uh, if he were here, and he's, he's a friend of mine, I, I like him very much. But if, I, if he were here, I'd say, Roger, now, come on, that's neither history nor economics. You can't just say P times P times P times P, <laughs> and that's my explanation. You have to have an account of each of the P's, and I do. And you have to have to have the non-P's, the ones that go the other direction, and I do. Now I don't. I don't see that. Say that I've done all the research and that my I'm got the scientific answer, and all these other people are wrong, completely wrong. But I, I don't think it accomplishes much to say p times p times p times p what do you think are the most important unanswered questions in this field in general or in your account in particular 
Well, the one you asked, which is what's the exact connection between liberty and innovation? I, I think we can nail it down. We can actually see it happening. And I, I've made some proposals that haven't really gone very far with them. I've made some proposals of this character of finding out. But you can sort of find out in an anecdotal way. But data is just a compilation of anecdotes. So eventually you persuade yourself that this is true. Innovation would not come out of a slave society for various reasons, among which is that the slaves don't get any advantage from it. And a slave mentality, such as um, Frederick Douglass from a young, young age refused to have, is not good for innovation. Whereas, you know, when, you're, when you have liberty, look, take the case of the numerous female entrepreneurs who have developed since the 1950s. Um, it's still not equal to the men, but still there are lots of them. When they're made free, they they create. And it's in the creation. It's not just in the capital accumulation. That's to take that one input and make it glorious. And that's the problem with the word capitalism, which is a silly word, scientifically speaking. You prefer innovation? So yeah, I, I, I certainly do, which at least directs you to what's quantitatively the correct area to be looking into. What economists should be doing is not doing more growth theory, which depends on this capital accumulation idea, uh, which, you know, I agree that capital accumulation happens and is desirable once you have something to do with the capital, once you have innovation. But if you don't have innovation, it's of no use at all. What they should be looking into is the causes of free societies and how this liberalism connects to the prosperity of science, the prosperity of entrepreneurs, prosperity, and I emphasize this, the prosperity of ordinary people to move to better jobs. Migration, for example, is terribly important. If everyone was a serf, and although even the serfs in the high Middle Ages in England were not really bound to the soil the way people imagine, but still, if you're obstructed in movement, take the serfs in Eastern Europe, in Russia in particular, who were bound to the soil in, in a very serious way, you're, you're obviously not going to get the little innovation that happens when I take a job at Cato at age 80, having been retired for seven years. That's, that's an innovation. When you went to your present job, that's an innovation. You're taking a big chance. You're going way out on the, on, the, on the thin ice. And when people are allowed to do that, and as you said earlier, when the rest of the society admires them instead of making fun of them or passing laws to stop them, then you get economic growth. Look, if, if it was only history that showed it, I wouldn't be on such strong grounds. But look at what happened in China and then in India. After 1978, my friend Steve Chung, a famous Chinese economist, convinced the Communist Party he was one of them, convinced the Communist Party to go the capitalist road. And uh, Deng Xiaoping got them to do it. And income per head in China is now equal to that of income per head in Brazil. Whereas in, in the 1978, it was $1 or $2 a day per person. And likewise, in India, after 1991, uh, Singh and his uh, colleagues deregulated India 
not completely, but in, in a considerable way. And Indian national income has been leaping up ever since. Now, both Xi Jinping and Modi can kill it if they, if they work at it, and both of them are. And I wish they wouldn't. How vulnerable is the great enrichment? How, how worried should they or we be that it can be killed? It, it's a little hard to kill it now because, because the genie is out of the bottle. Uh, the cat is out of the bag. You can think of various other proverbs. Because the demonstration effect is very strong. One of the reasons that the Chinese Communist Party was so bothered by Hong Kong is that here was a Chinese population very successful before 1978. And uh, then furthermore, a Chinese population after the handover from, from the Brits that was developing self-government. is not only economically free, it is becoming politically free. And so they sent in the police. My overall take on this, uh, on the tyrants in the modern world, and the ancient world for that matter, is if a tyrant has to use secret police in the army to keep people in line, who has won? I think it's liberty that's won. Over and over again, these regimes fall or just barely hold back from falling, as in the Arab Spring. So I'm optimistic that it can't be taken back. Certainly the economic part of it can't be taken back. And I think the political corollaries of uh, liberalism can't be taken back. I think we're at the end of history. Well, that's encouraging. Can I ask you yeah. to say a brief word or or not brief if you like? I just want to mention a few other scholars who work in this field and see if you have any particular thoughts or if you think they they fit with your views or not in different ways. So new book out by um, Jared Rubin, Mark Koyama, How the World Became Rich. I don't know if you had a chance to look at that, but you know they certainly emphasize cultural explanations. But yeah. they, they try to do well, more of a summary of the field. Did you look at that at all? No, I haven't. But Jared has worked on the Arab world and on the Muslim world. And that's a very good example, as, a, as he certainly agrees of economic growth and liberalism in general being stymied after a flowering in the in the 9th and 10th and 11th um, century in Spain and, and Baghdad and so forth. The idea of the university was invented by the Arabs, not, not by the Europeans. But then they screwed it up, and then it fell back. But I don't know what their, their book is about. It is a summary of the literature of the most important modern literature on the subject. They do kind of have their own explanation, but primarily it's a summary of the literature. What about Joe Heinrich's work? Yeah, this is an amateur getting into economic history, unlike uh, Jared or Bob Allen. And of course, that's nice. I mean, isn't that cute? A nice acronym and so on. Yeah, well, his it's, account it's is somewhat strange, but there may be something to it. I, I haven't looked into it very seriously. But he says that the prohibition of cousin marriage was crucial. And that just strikes me as grasping at straws. But I, I, I don't want to pass judgment on these other scientists unless I've actually passed judgment on them. <laughs> and in the second volume, I got into them, got into some of them yeah. in great detail. But I think my, my categorization of the left and right is crucial here, that the right wants capital accumulation and the left wants 
exploitation. And those are the big ones. Those are the big political movers and the Wall Street Journal editorials and the World Bank and so forth. This is all what they talk about. And uh, I don't think that's where it is. Have you looked at all at Bruce Bueno de Mesquita? He's a he's a political scientist and a game theorist. And I think you might fit what you said about Joe Heinrich. I mean, he's not an amateur scholar, but this is not his field. But he has a particular game theoretic story about the competition between medieval European princes and the papacy and basically the the way they settled on naming bishops and that that has a lot to do with it. This is an old argument. It's the investiture controversy. Yes. And it's, come on, dear. The the causes of the modern world are recent. They're not deep in European history. This is a point I'm making in a book that I'm working on, on open fields and enclosures and English agricultural history, that it's just to, to, to have this, people want it to be deep. They want it to be about the Germanic tribes in the Black Forest or Athenian democracy or Christianity or the prohibition of cousin marriage as incest or 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 the investiture controversy. I mean, come on, things happened hundreds of years after these events. If being, say, white was a really good idea for economic growth, why did it take until the very late 18th century for it to matter. In the early 18th century, China was admired as a great economic success. And by 100 years later, China was the world's sick man. We, I, I, like, uh, I like cricket very much. And the, the bowler, who's the equivalent of the, of the pitcher, runs up to bowl. So fast bowlers get way back in the outfield and they run in and they hurl the ball at the, at the batsman. And this running up to bowl theories, or the, the other metaphors, the deep roots, the deep roots makes people feel profound. And it's just not very good history, in my opinion, in case after case. There are a lot of these theories out here. And um, there, there's a lot of winging it going on. And it, really annoys me. And here's one thing that really is important. There's not a lot of serious conversation going on. I told you that Joel Mokir is a deep friend of mine. I love Joel, and he loves me. But I can't get Joel to have a serious conversation about these matters. And I find that very distressing. Not personally, I mean, for the field. If we're going to do astronomy correctly, we've got to be talking to each other and testing each other's ideas in what amounts to a scientific conversation. And yet there's a kind of a, um, there's a kind of a mentality that says, I'll write my book and I'll ignore everyone else. Now you could accuse me of that, that I've, I've not read enough of these books that seem to come out every three months, but I've studied a lot of them and especially in the third and second and third volume, I go after a number of them. But that's really not good for this very important question of how we got rich, because it's got immediate implications for right now. What predictions do you think your account makes 
or even post-stictions that are in the more recent past? The really big ones are China and India, where liberalization caused massive increases in income per head. But Botswana contrasted with Zimbabwe is another experiment. They're the same kind of country next door to each other. And in fact, Zimbabwe has much better natural resources than Botswana. But Botswana has gone in this liberal direction, and Zim, you know, (laughs) hasn't. And it shows in the income numbers and in the scope, the human scope that these two different sub-Saharan African societies provide their, their occupants. My prediction is very simple. Let people have equality of permission in the economy, and you get a gigantically creative economy. And it's happened over and over and over again. See, the thing is, I say that I can explain the enrichment of these old countries, old, successful, economically successful countries. And I think I can, and it comes out of their liberty. Now, of course, once electric lights have been invented, tyrannies can adopt them and use them to torture people if they want, right? So it's it's the frontier I'm talking about. Although, indeed, if Xi Jinping keeps going the way he is and he is intent on it, uh, he'll manage to crush economic growth even in China. So for people who I've confused by jumping around and asking you all these different questions, can you once more just give a brief summary of what your thesis is? Why did we get rich when and where we got rich? We got rich because we got free. And if we want to keep getting rich or being rich, we have to stay free. The state didn't do it. The government didn't do it. It's not economic policy that made us rich. It's individuals trying out stuff. And it's actually as simple as that. If if the rest of society prevents you through the state or or through social scorn from trying out things, then new things aren't going to happen. It's like the suppression of free speech. It's like the suppression of gender and sexual preference. Liberty is liberty is liberty. They fit together. It's well summarized in the book that you wrote with Art Cardin summarizing the trilogy, Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, which is a good summary. That's right. That that title alone, which was suggested, by the way, by Art's dean, and we're we're ever thankful for him because that's a very good summary. Leave me alone and I'll make you rich. This is not on the topic of the bourgeois era trilogy and the great enrichment, but for my own curiosity... And because someone who I follow on Twitter wanted me to ask you and who's a big fan of yours, you mentioned in a recent interview that Milton Friedman mentioned that he regretted or changed his mind about the methodology of positive economics. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I can't elaborate too much because it comes from one letter that Milton sent to me after the publication. I think it was maybe it was the pre-publication. I can't remember the exact time of my of my essay, which then became a book called The Rhetoric of Economics. And Milton, I haven't looked at the letter for years, but he he said that I think what bothered him is that he got entangled in methodological questions. And Milton's not a philosopher. He was an empirical, he was an economist by all means, a fact guy. He wanted to know about the facts. And he was an excellent uh, arguer. In fact, he was relentless. But he didn't want to do the methodology of science. 
Uh, Paul Samuelson did. Paul Samuelson, when he was a kid, uh, when he was a junior fellow at Harvard, uh, was very entranced by this um, essentially logical positivism. And oddly, both of them had basically the same idea. There's often this contrast between Milton and Paul Samuelson on this methodological matter. But I, I think, as I recall, what he was saying is, what a pain in the neck. I, I, I wanted to do work on the consumption function, which is his best book, A Theory of the Consumption Function. Any economist who reads that book and doesn't see that he's in the presence of a first-rate economic mind is tasteless. What was the intellectual environment like? You mentioned earlier, you're a Chicago girl. At, had, at its height with Friedman and Coase and Becker and all these minds... It was astonishing. I, I got there in 68. I had been a Harvard undergraduate and graduate student. And Harvard was in a real slump intellectually. I happened to find Alex Gershenkron, who was a first-rate intellect, but and then John Meyer, a transportation economist and econometrician. And those two were my my mentors. And they were they were the top of the pops at Harvard at the time. But Chicago at the time was one of the three best economics departments in the world. The others were MIT and Cambridge, England. And it was an explosively creative place. I mean, if, if, if you add up all the economists, the ones in the business school and the law school and the economics department and the Department of Education and lots of other places, uh, there were about uh, 40 or 50 economists. And many of them were extremely good and were venturing on lots of things. Talk about equality of permission. They were uh, inventing, and and you could just go down the list. We in economic history were inventing the new economic history, Cleometrics, we came to call it. Gary Becker was inventing the new household economics, which, by the way, had an earlier history in Chicago. Ted Schultz had already invented uh, human capital, but was pressing it. Uh, Milton was talking about monetarism and reshaping macroeconomics to some degree. And then Bob Lucas came later, by the way, he was a son of a bitch. He died a couple, couple of days ago. He was inventing rational expectations. Bob Mundell was inventing international finance, the abstract theory of it. And Harry was helping him with that. Uh, the people over in the business school were inventing modern finance. I used to go to lunch with the guys in the business school, not the people in economics as much. And uh, Merton Miller was kind of the senior figure there. And uh, Myron Scholes and Fisher Black and, and forgetting the other guy. They were inventing modern finance right at the downstairs at the Quadrangle Club in the bar with uh, soup and sandwiches. And uh, Mary Jane Bowman was inventing the economic approach to education. And so it went. I mean, it's one after another. It was incredible. So it was a wonderful place to be an assistant professor. And then I got tenure. I was an associate professor. Then they wouldn't promote me to full professor when I wanted. And I got angry and left. But it was a smart, in the end, it was a smart thing to do because I flourished at the University of Iowa. That's where I became a a humanist. Do you have any recommendations for books that you think especially complement your trilogy? Yeah, you just have to look at the bibliography. Let's see. That's an interesting question, way to put it. Well, yeah, I actually do. I'm, as you said at the beginning, I hold the Isaiah Berlin Chair in Liberal Thought at the Cato Institute. And Isaiah Berlin is someone that people should read. 
he was a liberal. He wavered a bit when he was older, but he was a he was an advocate for what he called negative liberty. And I think there's a deep modern confusion, which you see in Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum and lots of other people I admire and think highly of, between a modern word, the Germanic word freedom, and the Romance word liberty have drifted apart. And, and freedom, as in FDR's famous uh, January 1941 for freedom speech, has come to mean having adequate money so that you're free to go to Paris when you want. And that's a big mistake that Isaiah Berlin, among others, including me, um, railed against. Anyway, he's he's worth reading. For example, he's very good on romanticism. He was going to write a big book on it, and he never got around to it. But romanticism is a terrible development, and it's the source of, of fascism and, and communism. Um, oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, there have been three big political ideas in the last three centuries. The first and the best one, the only good one, was liberalism in the 18th century. The next was nationalism, which flourished as an intellectual movement out of the romantic movement in the early 19th century. And then as a kind of a Hegelian reversal, but still romantic, uh, socialism, communism. And I, I make the joke that if of these three ideas, if you like nationalism and socialism, maybe you'll like national socialism. So, you know, I, I think what people should be doing is, as I said before, economic, economists should be studying the conditions that make for a creative society. You mentioned a few earlier, but can you say more about any upcoming projects you're currently working on? Well, I have a book I've just finished, which Chicago is looking at in its theology list called, uh, I keep changing the title, so I keep forgetting the title. I think it's now called Godly Economics, Public Theology for an Age of Innovism. And it's a long attempt, not as long as some of my other, some of these books in the trilogy, but long, to persuade especially my mainline Protestant friends, I'm a mainline Protestant, I'm an Episcopalian, that they don't have to be socialists to be serious Christians. So that that's in the oven, so to speak, or it's it's finished. I keep working on it because I love the book. I'm so interested in it. Because my my faith as a as a Christian came to me late after my, my gender change. I didn't suddenly arrive. It's slow, but it's growing. So that's one. And then I as I said, I've got a book on um, which is based on work that I did in the 1970s and 80s, early 80s, on open English open fields and enclosures. And that I've got a draft of. And I think if I get back to it, probably this summer, I'll get back to it in a serious way. And I think I may have a manuscript in about a year that collects all my earlier work and reframes it as a coherent book. I had it scattered all over in journals of history and economics and blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking forward to that. Together. Yeah, well, I am too. Where can people find you if they want to keep up with your work? Uh, they can go to my website, DeirdreMcCloskey.com. I'm trying to get more into Twitter, but I keep having other things to do. But I'm, I've got a webmaster here 
whom I pay separately at, at Cato, and he's helping me do it a little bit more. That, that's where they can find me. They can always find me by just sending me an email, because I'm, I'm very happy to discuss with people in a serious intellectual way. I was, I was asked a few weeks ago to debate a MAGA Republican named Michael, what was his name? Who's against transgendered people. And you surprised trans- everyone by saying yes. I said yes, and then I said no, because in the end, I thought this guy, Michael, he made a big splash at CPAC, this horrible conference of uh, reactionaries, by saying transgenderism needs to be eliminated. Oh, I know who you're talking about. He actually is more conservative than the Pope. This Pope is not very conservative, but he's more conservative than John Paul. Anyway, there he is. And and uh, in his tweets, he insists on calling me he, which is frat brother technique. I saw your debate with Kathleen Stock. That was probably better. Probably better. It was vastly better. Kathleen and I were both teaching for a week at the new University of Austin at Texas. Yeah. And I suggested to Kathleen, as she points out at the beginning of the debate, I suggested that we do this debate to show what this university is going to be like. And she and I disagree, as you could tell from the debate. But as you know, we hugged each other at the end. And and she was very amazing. She said, this is the first time that anyone has been willing to debate me in a civil fashion. And that goes back to the point I made about the state of scholarship on the causes of the modern economic world. Yeah, it was moving to watch. I mean, I'm frankly, I'm a fan of both of yours. And I was really excited to see the yeah. debate and see see you both being so civil. And uh, and I'm excited that you're both involved in the University of Austin. And and we weren't just being sweet to each other, and we tried to be. But we were, we were she's a, a philosopher. Her father was a philosopher, and she's very tough. And I'm very tough. Very much. But we, we were trying to explore the ideas. If we had a longer time, if we had a semester together at an institute, we might be able to come to some resolution. But in any case, that's how it should be in economic history, but it's not. Well, I'm going to include a link to some info on Isaiah Berlin on the show notes, as well as your website, Twitter, and email if people want to reach out. My guest, once again, has been Professor Deirdre McCloskey, author of the Bourgeois Era Trilogy. And I'm going to link to each one of the books in the trilogy, as well as Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, which is a shorter summary of the trilogy. Professor McCloskey, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. I've enjoyed it, though I notice we haven't had sex. I'm I'm not going to edit that out. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.